Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, on this day, we thank you that whatever kind of dad we might have grown up with or didn't get to grow up with, that you are our Father God. We thank you that you are the perfect Father. And so we give honor to you today. We thank you, Father, that you love us, that you take care of us, you go before us, and that you want a relationship with us. And you have made every single person here who receives you their children. So we thank you, Father God, for making us your children. And we receive you and we give honor to you today, most of all, the great Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, welcome everybody back to Abraham. We're in part three today of our series looking at the life of Abraham. And today we're in chapter four. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning there. Okay, I'm very excited. We're going to meet this very mysterious, shadowy figure by the name of Melchizedek. It calls him the king of Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. And Abraham has this encounter with Melchizedek. I, the only way I could describe it is it is transcendent. It is like, woo, something's going on here. It's, a, it's hard to explain in earthly terms. It's supernatural. And there is just a whole lot of Jesus-y implications in this uh, story when we get there. Now, I want to dive right in, but I'll tell you this. When we get to the beginning of chapter 14, you can see it right here. This chapter begins with kind of a toss salad of names and places, words that are hard to pronounce for me, and it would bore me to tears and you to try to get through it all. And I figured, you know, you dads want to get to lunch today before three o'clock. So I'm going to summarize this part right here, these first 12 verses, if that's okay with you. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, we were, when we last left our story, we're in chapter 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot had grown so wealthy that they had to kind of split their tribes up. And so they went two different ways. And Abraham goes west into the land of Canaan, uh, what we think of today as Israel. And while Lot, he goes off and lives in the eastern valley near Sodom and Gomorrah. Ooh, okay. Chapter 14, when we get here now, it tells us it the first thing it starts with is there is a war that breaks out among nine different kingdoms and it becomes a full-on like Game of Thrones among all these kings. They are all vying for, for leaders. And, and it turns out one of these kings by the name of Ketoleomir, Ketoleomir, he is sort of the master king, master ruler over all of these. And the other eight kings pay him tribute. So they've been paying, it's kind of like protection money. It's basically kind of like a mafioso. And so he's, he's sort of in charge of all of them until, and this goes on for like 13 years or so, and then until five of the kings get together and they decide no more. We're done. We're out. We're not going to pay you any more money. And so they split. And so the four kingdoms who are still under Ketoleomir decide to go to war against the five kingdoms who split. So you understand where we're at? They go to war, and uh, they rebel, and they are defeated, however. Ketoleomir and the four kings defeat the ones who had tried to rebel, and they plunder their cities. They carry off all their spoils, their food, their slaves. They carry off all these things. And two of the cities that are defeated, that were part of the group that tried to rebel, there are two of the cities that are defeated are Sodom and Gomorrah, where, if you remember, that's where Lot and his family had went uh, to had been living, 
So in the process of this defeat of these kingdoms, Lot and his folks are carried off. They're kidnapped by these raiding parties that are just sweeping through the city, carrying off all the stuff and all the people. So they're, they're kidnapped by the conquering kings. And Abraham, word gets back to him, and he's faced with this decision whether or not to go and rescue Lot. And that's kind of the story that we're going to jump into in a minute. But as we do this, I want us to think, uh, notice there's a lot of warfare going on in this chapter. And it reminds us that as Christians, our whole, our idea of warfare is different. Uh, because our concept of kingdom is different, right? When you have an earthly kingdom, when you have a physical kingdom and your allegiance is to this earthly physical kingdom, then you have earthly physical battles. Uh, but you know what? The one thing is uh, that ha- we all have in common here, whatever country we were all born in, and we have a lot of different countries that we represent here today, and I love that about Generations Church, Whatever country you were born in, when you come to Christ, you become a naturalized citizen of the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God. We are all brand new citizens of a brand new kingdom, of a wonderful kingdom. And it is the kingdom that that rules all kingdoms, right? We're all citizens. And the other cool thing about it is as soon as you become a citizen of this kingdom, you become an ambassador of this kingdom back to the world, right? So we are all ambassadors. We're all citizens of this kingdom. And so our our battles are spiritual. The Bible tells us, it has a lot to talk about that, how our battles are spiritual. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But we still are doing what Abraham is, we're going to see him called to do, which is go on rescue missions. He's going to go on a rescue mission to free kidnapped people from bondage. And that is what we do. We free people. We free kidnapped people from bondage. We bring the gospel and set people free. Now, for Abraham, you could just imagine in his world growing up, there's a lot of injustice all around. It's kind of the Wild West. You know, where he lives, it's the Wild It's kind of, you know, it's pretty much like an anarchic type of system. And everyone's sort of on their own. And so there's a lot of opportunities he could take to, you know, reach out and, and fight for justice. It doesn't say, show him doing this. And what motivates him to take action today is family. Family's involved, right? And so he feels the sense of duty that family is worth saving. And I think every father and every mother in this place today would kind of understand that. When it comes to family, when it comes to our kids... Right? There's just something that no, nothing's going to stand in your way to making sure they're safe and secure. If something happened to them, you'd go after them, right? You'd be like Liam Neeson. I will find you and I will kill you, right? You, you, you go after them because there's something about family. So I think, and I think that's, that's innate. It's like in our DNA that I think family is an appropriate filter, us, filter for us to decide what we can do, what we can help with, right? The, the, the need seems overwhelming, but family is, a, is an important filter, how much we can do to make a difference. That filter often starts with family. But what's exciting is that when we get to the New Testament, our whole idea of family expands. The definition of family expands in the New Testament, right? And so we still find that our, our biological or a home, our extended family is important. We're told not to neglect that. But now our spiritual family becomes just as much real family. That's the picture we see of the, of the new church. Our spiritual family becomes real family. And so now, you know, now for me, what, what matters isn't just what's going on in the Hale home, you know, among our five. What, what matters is, is what can I do for my brothers and sisters who are in Christ, right? It expands. 
because now you are my family. This is my family because God's my father and I'm a son and he's a son and she's a daughter and you're a daughter and you're a son and you're a daughter. We're brothers and sisters. You're family. Like it or not, right? We're family. And so that expands our idea. And so that's the New Testament church we see in Scripture. God has adopted us into his family, so we're all part of the family of God. So just to kind of throw that out there. So let's jump into chapter 14 here. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. In verse 13, uh, Lot has just been kidnapped by this raiding party, and word gets to Abraham. It says, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. This is cool. This is the first time the word Hebrew is said in the Bible. The first time the word Hebrew. He's called Abram the Hebrew. It's the first time Abram's kind of been given a new identity marker. He's kind of a clan leader here, this tribe, this clan, the clan of the Hebrew. Um, This word Hebrew, we don't even know the etymology of it. We don't know where it came from. There's some ideas out there, but we don't really know. Um, What we can say is that Abraham is identified here for the first time as being kind of the father of his own people. He's no longer known as Abraham of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's, you know, where he was born. He's no longer known as that. Abram the Hebrew. He's this man who grew up in a pagan land. He grew up with pagan people, but he has this supernatural relationship with God Now, he doesn't know everything about this God yet. He's kind of learning as he goes, but he was following God. He's following him in obedient faith. And so his own tribe begins to grow here. Uh, Most scholars believe that the people that he would have been, uh, he he probably had about a thousand people under his care at this time, by this time. So he's now seen as kind of a shake of of people, kind of, you know, mayor of this traveling town. Uh, the Hebrews. He's becoming known as Abraham the Hebrews. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied, allied with Abram. Okay, so Mamre the Amorite identifies him, Eshcol and Aner. These are, these are pagan brothers who, they're Amorites, and Abraham's been living near them, and he's developed a friendship with them, and his character his, uh, his integrity has led these Amorites to, to like him. They're getting along good. And Abram the Hebrew, you know, and they have a good friendship with him. Um, in fact, so much so that later when Abram needs help to rescue Lot, these guys say, we will go with you and our people will go and help your people. So these guys are allies. He's, he's making allies in the, in the region. Verse 14 says, so when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men. 318 is a very specific number. That's very unusual in these scriptures. A lot of times you just see sort of generalized numbers like 4,000 or 7,000 or 40 or something, you know, these sort of special numbers. 318 sounds very, very specific. We don't know the significance, but apparently it's just the writers want to make sure we know this is kind of, he's going against all odds. You know, this isn't a whole lot. And they were, these are trained men born into his household. So they're trained. So these guys have some battle experience. Um, Why would that be? Because as your tribe grows, as you get more stuff, more sheep, you got more people, uh, you got to defend those things from people who want to take it, right? And so he's kind of got a security detail here, and they're trained for fighting. In verse 15, it says, during the night, so he's going to to have to use stealth here uh, to use darkness in his battle plan, you know, to maybe the element of surprise uh, to give the impression there's more numbers than he has. 
And he routed them, it says, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. In verse 16, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So he wins. He raids the raiding party and he defeats them. And um, he's rescued everybody, not just his own family. He's rescued everybody who was taken, apparently. In verse 17, it says, after Abram returned from defeating Ketileomir and the kings uh, allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, which is the king's valley. So the king of Sodom, he's come back with all the stuff. The king of Sodom comes out. But now before we get to that, the writer stops here and mentions something very interesting that happens. And here's where we got to put on our seatbelt. Here we go. In verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, let's talk about this guy for a little bit. Melchizedek. This word, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. The king of righteousness. And he's king of Salem, which would eventually be Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem means the city of peace. So here's the king of righteousness and the king of the city of peace. The king of righteousness and the king of peace comes out and brings bread and wine and invites Abram to the table. Okay, you catching this? Out of Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem comes the king of righteousness and the king of peace with bread and wine and says, come to my table. Is he starting to sound like anybody you know? Okay, maybe, maybe. Let's see. There's this really fascinating parallel uh, of Melchizedek and Jesus implanted in this story. Oh, and wait, he's not only the king of Salem, he's also what? The priest of God Most High. So he's a king and he's a priest of God Most High. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? Right? And that's not a usual thing, right? Those are, usually, those are two different functions, the king and the priest. And this guy is the king and the priest of uh, righteousness and peace. Okay. Here's what else is kind of weird here. If you go back and, and look at that, those first 12 verses of all the kings and the cities that are all, you know, fighting each other, it says, here is the king of Salem. Salem's not mentioned. Salem's not part of this war. It's, it's not part of the cities that were going to battle or that had anything stolen from them. There's no mention of Salem. So why is this king, who is also the priest of the God Most High, even here? And he says, come to my table of bread and wine. And he says in verse 19, blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Who is this guy? Where did he learn that? And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. There's some beautiful, beautiful things going on here we're going to look at. First of all, Melchizedek refers to God Most High, God Most High. This is the Hebrew word Elion, and, and what, it's a reference to the God who is above all gods. The literal meaning is the God above all gods. So we don't know whether Melchizedek has, we don't know for that reason, that matter, uh, if Abraham or Melchizedek has a fully gelled theology about who Yahweh is, right? I mean, they don't have a, the benefit of a Bible in front of them like we do. They believe, however, Yahweh is the creator and he is the God above all gods. 
we don't even know if Melchizedek had like left his pagan faith completely behind or what that faith was. We don't even know if Abraham knew that God was the only God there was, or was he just the great God above all gods? That's all that God's revealed to him so far. We don't have a, God never has told him, I'm the only one there is, by the way. He just said, I'm the one above all, right? So this is what Abraham understands. I mean, that's even a hurdle that 400 years later, the Israelites are still trying to wrestle with this God above all gods, right? Even in the Ten Commandments, he says, you'll have no over the gods before me. That still sounds like, well, maybe there's other gods like at the table, but, you know, God has to come first. It, you understand? So, the, it's kind of this progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament that the Israelites even get, oh, 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 the only God, I got you now. That took a while. That took a while. So, Abraham is learning as he goes, but Abraham and Melchizedek are both in agreement on this, that there is an Elion, the God most high above all gods, and he is the creator God. It's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. When you look back at when God called Abraham, when he first called Abraham, he did not begin with a PowerPoint presentation of their doctrinal statement, did he? Right? God didn't come to Abraham and say, now we have an information class on our statement of faith on Tuesday nights. Uh, I'd love you to take it. And, you know, if you connect with us, you feel like that, you know, you want to align with us. All he, instead, what does God say? He comes to Abraham and he says, come with me. I'll show you a land. I'll show you a land and I'm going to bless you. That's what Abraham says, or God says. And there's something in Abraham that says, yeah, there's truth here. There's truth here. This is right. And then, what does Abraham do? He steps out in faith. It doesn't say he stepped out in knowledge. He stepped out in faith. Steps out in faith. He learns as he goes. And his faith is unfolding day by day. Next week, we're going to cover chapter 15. Chapter 15, you don't want to miss. I'm, I've been looking forward to it since the beginning of this series, because this is kind of where everything goes. It is mind-blowing, okay? I'm just, I'm just telling you now, everything, it, it, it resets everything that we understand about the nature of spirituality and religion. I don't want to build it up too much, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be the most amazing thing you've ever heard. Um, so that's going to be happening next Sunday. But Abraham is learning as he goes with God. Isn't that exciting to realize? We look back on these stories and we assume like Abraham knows everything we know. But he's learning, and that's often the case for us, isn't it? Isn't it the case? Do you know more today than you knew yesterday about God? This year than you knew last year? I hope you do. I, I know a little more this year than I knew last year. And sometimes what I know this year is that there's a lot to know about God. <laughs> right? That's what I've learned. Oh, there's a lot I don't know. We learn more and more about God all the time. And so Abraham's learning as he goes. You don't know everything before you say yes to Jesus. You don't know everything. The Holy Spirit helps you get there. The Holy Spirit draws you into that first yes. This is a mistake a lot of people don't understand. The Holy Spirit draws us into that first yes and, and, and helps us understand, okay, there's truth there. There's truth there. And you say yes to that and then you learn as you go. And when you think about it, if it's just a matter of understanding everything first, then the gospel would only be relevant for really smart people, right? It would only be relevant for, for literate people. Um, 
people who had the privilege of being born into a, a proper education or, or people who could wrestle with great logical conundrums and, or, you know, study history or things like that. Uh, but the gospel is the great equalizer. It's the primary, the primary way that we say yes, the primary way we say yes is not through logic or reasoning. It's very rare that you can logic and reason somebody into saying yes to Jesus. That's not the primary way we say yes. Our yes is ultimately a response to the pull of God through the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing all the time. He's pulling us. He's drawing us towards Jesus. The Bible says it's not by faith. Sorry, it's not by sight, but by faith. I I gave it away, sorry. (laughs) It's not by sight, it's by faith. So I could have all the evidence of the world dumped into my lap, but ultimately I follow Jesus by faith, which is made possible by His Spirit. And that's what Abraham responded to. He didn't respond to an argument. He responded to an invitation, didn't he? An invitation for a relationship with God, not a degree, not a PhD, a relationship. I think that's why nobody gets saved on Facebook. We got these great arguments, right? And you get on there, oh, I'm going to let them have it. Take that. Unfallible logic. Nobody gets saved on Facebook because we don't get saved by arguments. We don't get saved by logic. We get saved by an invitation. Amen? Amen. That was for free. The the disciples of Jesus, what did they respond to? Jesus invites them and then they learn, didn't they? And boy, did they learn as they go. We see these stories of the disciples, and we can look at them now, you know, for the benefit of hindsight and go, what a bunch of idiots, right? But they're learning as they're going too. Throughout the Gospels, the disciples are constantly getting things wrong and having to be corrected. Even in the book of Acts, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, the, whole, the Holy Spirit is given, and now these disciples are now the apostles of the church, leading the church. They're still the leaders of the church, and they are still learning. They're still having to be corrected, like in Acts 10. They're having to be corrected. With, uh, uh, Peter, like Peter, there's major lessons that they have to learn all the time. They're always learning about this infinite God, this infinite topic, and it's a privilege, isn't it? It's a privilege, and it keeps the journey exciting. And, and what it takes to say yes in the first place is just to recognize that God is the one pulling on your heart, and all it takes is you saying, yes, I will follow I will follow. When Jesus invites us to be his disciples, he uses two words, doesn't he? When you look in scripture, he uses two words. He says it repeatedly, and people are willing to leave everything behind so that they can be closer to him. What are those two words that Jesus uses? Follow me. Follow me. me. When Jesus first meets his disciples, whatever they are in life, whatever they're doing, before he teaches them, I, I can't find where he teaches them one single piece of significant doctrine, before he teaches them anything, even about who he really is, he simply invites them, follow me. I'm going to show you some things. Follow me. And you have Matthew, the tax collector, and Peter, the the fisherman, and James and John, and they all walk away from businesses or family businesses or financial pursuits, and they say, yes, there's something here that's true. I'm going to follow Jesus. And that is when their journey of learning begins. We don't even see the disciples repenting 
before they begin to follow Jesus. Now, that'll mess with your theology right there. <laughs> follow me. Okay. All right. And then they follow. And some of you may be in that place. Some of you may be there, and you just want one more answer first. You, need, you know, I just need, I got these questions, and I just need one more answer, and I just want, I want to, I just want to name it this morning. You may be thinking, I need the answer to one more question, I just have to, and you'll get your answers to the questions as you journey with Jesus. And any of our brothers and sisters here in Christ can, can tell you that that's true. You get those answers as you journey, Right? And they keep coming all life long. But maybe right now what you need to do is just respond to what you know is the call of God on your life. Just saying, follow me. Here's the cool thing that we believe. When you say yes to that, follow me, you're also going to meet a lot of other people along the way. You're going to meet other people, who, other people who have said yes, who come alongside you to bless you and to help you, and to encourage you. This seems to be what Melchizedek is in this story to Abram. Abraham said yes to God years before this. The God who said, follow me. Abraham said yes. And now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes along, and he blesses him and says, I also honor the God most high, Elion. In fact, I'm a priest of him, right? So I'm a little further on the journey, and I'm blessing you. And God will bring Melchizedeks into our life. He's always wanting to bring these Melchizedek figures into our life who are also on that journey, and, and, and we learn together. How does Abraham respond in verse 20? After he receives the blessing of Melchizedek, it says, Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. A tenth of everything. This is very interesting right here. This is the first time in all of the Bible where tithing is specifically mentioned. And tenth, uh, tithing is simply means a tenth. It's just a tenth. That's just the fancy word. And as we've talked about before, we've talked about this before up here, that this is, was something our church practices. As a church, we practice that. You know, the, the offerings that are given in, a tenth of that, this church tithes uh, more than a tenth now, but this church ties into ministries outside, the, all over the world that go, that go on out there. It's something we've talked about before. That Melissa and I do as a, as a personal financial principle. We do this, you know, our income, 10%. We, we tie this, just something we, we practice. It's something we've, we see mentioned in Scripture. And here we see talked about in this story, the tenth, and, and notice this is way before the law of Moses. This isn't part of Judaism. Right? There's no such thing as Judaism or law at this point. This is something we just see as a principle. And then we see it incorporated in the law of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament. We see it there too. And then we see Jesus mentioned it in the New Testament, a tenth of your income. And it appears here for the first time, it appears to be a, a way, when Abraham does it, is it a way to show honor. This isn't a duty. Abraham has no duty to this king it's, it's a voluntary act of worship, of honor. It's motivated primarily by gratitude. Because what, what the tithe is coming for here is Abraham, he's tithing because of the blessing. Abraham is saying, thank you for this blessing, for that encouragement, for reminding me that God is the one who gave me that victory. I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. 
right? And I honor who you are, and I honor what you represent. It's gratitude. It's honor. I want to give you 10%. It's a beautiful principle for life. I'm just telling you, it's not a legalism. It's not a law. It's a way of honoring as well as saying, thank you, Abraham gives this 10% to Melchizedek. By the way, we've, I'm not going to go more into this because we've talked about this just a, a few months ago. If you want to learn some more about this principle, the supernatural principle of tithing, uh, check out the message Radically Generous on our podcast or on, online. Radically Generous is back in March. Uh, we did a really, uh, uh, it was really good if I say so myself. Um, talked all about tithing. Okay, so there we go. Something else interesting about Melchizedek here. He's not only an encourager to Abram, he's not only somebody that I would, I would say represents Jesus. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek. And uh, all through chapter 7, it's a fascinating chapter. I encourage you, get together with your friends this week and just sit around and, and read the, through this chapter. It is packed with just some amazing, amazing insight about how it is true. And the author of Hebrews says, if it's true that Melchizedek represents Jesus to Abraham, the king of peace, he says, the author says, hey, you notice it means king of peace and king of righteousness, the high priest of God, all these things that are true of Jesus. And the, and the writer of Hebrews says, do you see what's going on here? When Abram tithes to Melchizedek, he's not only honoring who Jesus is, it is all of Israel honoring the trajectory toward Jesus. The author of Hebrews 7 says, think of it this way, within Abram, he's, he, Abram is seen as the father of Israel, and in his being is the DNA, it calls it the seed, the DNA that will become Israel. It's all contained in Abraham right now. And also in his being is the spiritual DNA that's going to be the religious system. All of Judaism is like contained within Abraham, like his DNA. And Abraham is, represents that Levitical priesthood that will be, that religious priesthood. And so Hebrews, the author says, the whole religious system that would eventually come to Israel is already in Abraham in seed form. So when Abraham honors Melchizedek, it is the entire religious system of the old covenant submitting to the supremacy of Christ. That is beautiful. It is so cool, but you got to read it a whole bunch of times to get it. It's, it's deep stuff, right? I'm not making this stuff up, right? The author of Hebrews says God is revealing himself through history, through people, through events. And on this side where we live, this side of Jesus, you, we can look back and, and to see what he's been saying, that everything is submitting to, everything in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament is submitting to, is pointing to Jesus. And it's happening right here in this moment because Jesus came to save us, not only from our sins, he came to save us from our religion. Amen? He came to save us. And we see this foreshadowed right here in Genesis. Okay, so he has this encounter with Melchizedek. Then, verse 21, the king of Sodom. Remember, he, remember him? He walked out earlier. He has a conversation with Abram, and it is completely different in tone. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abraham, hey, you rescued my people. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Give them back to me. I tell you what, you get to keep the spoils of war you brought back. Just, I'll take my people. Win-win. It sounds really generous, doesn't it? That sounds like a really generous offer. But do you notice what's missing from this conversation? How is this conversation different than his conversation with Melchizedek? There's just no mention of God, is there? 
There's no mention of God. Melchizedek has, he came and has reframed Abraham's whole victory. He's reminded him, Abraham, don't forget. Abraham, don't forget. Uh, God has done this for you. God is at work in all of this. And Abram says, yes, that's the encouragement I need. That's the reframing of my, for my life that I needed in this moment. And the king of Sodom comes along and says, let's talk about trade negotiations, right? Give me the people, you keep the goods. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. There's that Elion again that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram says, I know God's going to bless me. He's going to continue to blessing me. He's told me he's got a destiny for my life, right? I'm going to succeed at a lot of different things, and I don't want you taking the credit, because obviously you're not a person who wants to give credit to God. He's got very high standards here. Abraham has a very high standard here. He says in verse 24, I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten. Because, you know, they went on the battle, uh, and then they sat down and ate some of the food that, they, that, they had, that had been stolen from Sodom. So he says, obviously, I can't give you that back. That would get messy. I'm not going to accept what my, I, I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Okay, this is really cool. I love this. I love this. Because Abram has these very high standards and says, I'm not going to accept your money, but I'm not going to make that decision for my friends. Isn't that cool? This is wonderful. Because the ethics of a Jesus follower are for Jesus followers. Right? That's how Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. He was teaching, and he told his disciples. He called to him, and he said, as disciples, this is how you should live, with the crowd looking on. But he's telling his disciples. But as Christians, so we don't, we don't force our ethics on other, other people, right? Christians, unfortunately, we kind of have a, a reputation for trying to police everyone else's decisions, try to legislate morality for people who aren't Christ followers. And, and that's the least of their problems, is their morality, right? Abraham doesn't do that. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to take any of the spoils of war. And I could just imagine right now, Mamre is kind of like looking over his shoulder going, say what? <laughs> and then Abraham adds, but they can too, if they want to. That's their decision. I'm not going to judge them for it. It's beautiful. Amen. Let me close with this. Melchizedek shows up in this story. And, and, and there's a lot more we could say. We, we, we're really kind of condensed just some of the amazing things. There's, he's mentioned in the book of Psalms. He's mentioned just a couple other places in the Bible. But he shows up in this story. And I think the reason why it feels so odd as I'm rereading this story is because the story that we've been looking at here is the story of God revealing himself to someone named Abraham. That's the story we've been looking at. The story of God revealing himself to Abraham. Mankind, you just imagine the whole earth has kind of been living in this darkness, it seems like. It seems like, you know, all the, the world is sort of fumbling around on different continents trying to figure out what God is, who God is. Everybody's got a different God, right? And Abraham gets this special revelation from Yahweh. And he's got to feel pretty good. He's got to feel pretty special, right? Abraham's got to be like, wow, this is amazing. All this going on. And, and you revealed yourself to me. And, and then in the middle of God doing this new thing, this whole new thing, 
I'm going to make you a father of a nation, and you're, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world, and it's all going to come through you. God's doing this brand new thing. In the middle of this, a character shows up from left field who is already in on the new thing, what God is doing. And he's not from Abraham's tribe. He's not part of Abraham's story. He's not a Hebrew. He's not Jewish. He's just this guy over here. He's king of a city. Someone who appears on the scene, blessing Abraham in the name of the Most High God and offering bread and wine. And here, within the pages of the Bible itself, we have a clear example of someone knowing God, walking with God, blessing people in the name of God without having any connection, apparently, to the particular Abraham story that's unfolding. And what's great is that Abraham somehow instinctually, maybe supernaturally, he understands this, and he has the intelligence to embrace this. He doesn't say, well, you know, you're not for my people. God gave me the revelation. So I don't know who you are. No, he embraces this. In fact, he responds to Melchizedek very interestingly. He gives him tithes and offerings, which is what you would normally do to a god. He responds to Melchizedek as you would respond to a god. So what does this have to do with us today? Every single one of you in this place God has called you. You are no less significant to the Lord, to the kingdom, than Abraham. God has called you specifically. He's called you on a journey. He has called you out to step out and to trust in him, to walk with him, to take you to the place where he wants to take you. Every single one of you. Me too. He has called us. Whoever you are, God knows your name. And he knows your next right step. He knows he wants a relationship with you. He wants to have this personal relationship with you. Most importantly, he does not intend for you to be on this journey or to figure it all out by yourself. No one walks alone. No one walks alone. He doesn't intend for you to be on this journey by yourself. Now, God also because he's awesome. He loves to throw a monkey wrench in all of our nice, neat little idols and ideas that we have about, uh, that we've figured out about God and who God is and who God's allowed to use and who he's not allowed to use. He laughs at that. Amen. Thinks that's awesome, right? So don't be surprised when you meet people along the way who, people who have none of your background people who yet clearly have this genuine connection with what God is up to, okay? This is normal. And yes, even biblical. This is biblical. is how God works. Don't be caught off guard when people from outside your, your party or your denomination or doctrine, culture club, whatever it is that you have created, when they show up and they have something profound to give, to give you something good to give you, to bless you with. Because the God of this universe, how many of you know, the God of this universe whom we serve is bigger and greater and higher and beyond any one tribe of people. Amen? Jesus said, my father is always at work. And so when someone you don't recognize comes up to you 
and shows up with bread and wine or some kind of blessing or encouragement, it may seem strange, it may seem unexpected considering who it is that's offering it to you, but it may also be the most high God showing up to give you exactly what you need today. It may be the most high God showing up to give you the word that you need today, the daily bread you needed today, right now. Amen? Amen? Blessing you, reminding you of who you are and why you're here. So today I want to pray for us. And I'm going to ask God, let's ask God to, to help us respond to his blessings, to his encouragement from other people, the way Abraham does. The way he responds, not with suspicion or keeping a tight grasp on our stuff, what's ours, but to respond with generosity, with gratitude, with honor. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we submit ourselves to you the way Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. We honor you, Jesus. We want to put you first. Just like Abraham was, was motivated to get involved in the injustice around him, Lord God, in that rescue mission because his family was in trouble. I pray that we would find that our first impulse to the hurting or to the needs of other people, Lord God, would be to get involved, to pursue, to reconcile, to rescue because family really is involved. Your children are our brothers and sisters. Family is involved. Lord, help us to have our eyes open to the miracles happening all around us every day. Help us to have our ears tuned in to receive the word that you know we need. To recognize the daily bread that we're desperate for, that you are providing us, even when it comes from unexpected places, Father. Humble us, Father, to receive from you. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are bigger than our box. I thank you, Lord God, that you are God and I am not. Praise the Lord. May we not live just as, as members of a, the Christian religion, but as followers of Christ. Help us to become more and more like Jesus every day and to share that gospel with everyone we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.